Good morning. Happy Easter. It is good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming, joining us for worship here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church this morning. And what a beautiful day it is outside for us to be able to come together on the inside and gather together to worship their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we celebrate today. Today is a day of celebration for us because it is a day that we celebrate the victory that Jesus Christ had over death. And it's a victory that was not just for him. It is a victory that he invites all to participate with him. And we realize that as Christians, our, our hope is wrapped up in the fact that Jesus Christ has been victorious over death and over hell and over Satan. And he has risen from the grave. And that is why we come together on a day like today as believers. And we look at one another and we say, he is risen. I hope you don't get tired of saying that today. I hope everybody you meet that you can just continue to do that. Tell everyone that he is risen indeed. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for making room uh, for everyone today. We had a wonderful uh, service this morning, a sunrise service at 7 o'clock and then a, and a breakfast. And then we had another service and, and uh, we had a lot of folks in there too. And so it's been a great day to be here at the house of the Lord this morning. You know, the celebration of Easter, as I've already mentioned, is truly the pinnacle of the church year. And as I was thinking about that and, and just contemplating uh, that thought over the last couple of weeks in anticipation of our gathering together as church family and, and as friends to be here this morning, I was reminded of a story. It was the story of a, of a young boy who lived in a kind of a remote part of the country uh, at the turn of the last century. And the little boy had really never had a whole lot of time to do opportunities to see a lot of things. His family was fairly poor. And so at that particular point, they found that the circus was coming to town. And he had never seen the circus. But the, the amount of money that it would take to buy a ticket to the circus was, was almost cost prohibitive. It cost an entire dollar to buy a ticket to the circus. And so he knew that if he wanted to go, he was going to have to, to, to work odd jobs to save up money. And so he did. And he, he worked hard. And he came up finally with enough money to buy a ticket to the circus. And he was so excited to finally see it when it came to town. And, and on the day that the circus came to town, people of all ages, they lined up around the streets. And, and they watched as, as the, the elephants and the acrobats and the marching bands and, and the clowns all came down Main Street. And the little boy got, pushed his way to the front and got a front row view of, of, of the, the, the ones as they began to come down. And he enjoyed it so much. It was such an amazing thing. He'd never seen anything like it before in his life. And right towards the end of, of everyone coming down, he reached out in his pocket. And the clown who had kind of been walking down the street came real close. And he reached out and he gave his ticket to the clown. And the clown took it. And the little boy turned around and he went home. And he got home and... His dad thought, well, he got home a whole lot sooner than I anticipated that he would. And so he asked his son, he said, why are you home so early? He says, well, I went to the circus. He said, really, what did you see? And he described how all the performers came down the street playing their trombones and beating the drums and how the acrobats were doing flips and the elephants were walking down the street and the clowns were performing. And he got to the end and his dad picked him up and he said, son, I'm so sorry to tell you. You didn't see the circus. All you saw was the parade. It has been my prayer for each of you in this room 
that we would not be like that little boy today. You see, there's people who've come from all over and services just like this one. And they've come to hear the songs of the choir and others sing. They'll listen to a, a, a preacher read words from Scripture and, and talk about the resurrection of Jesus and the, the life and the hope that it brings. And many of them will walk outdoors just like those in the back and they will go home thinking that they have experienced Easter. When the fact of the matter is, all they will have done was watch the parade. But the sad truth, they will have missed the main event. They will leave having never really truly encountered the risen Christ. And I hope that that will not be the case for you today. I hope because I, the reason that I hope that is because I believe to miss a true encounter with Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, would be the greatest tragedy that could ever occur for you today. In fact, the scriptures give us insight to just how tragic a missed encounter like that can actually be. I want us to examine such an encounter like that this morning. So if you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, please take them out and turn with me to Luke's Gospel, the 24th chapter. Luke chapter 24. If you're using the Bibles in the seat back in front of you, you'll find the passage on page 1,218. The events of Luke 24 are very familiar to us, at least for many of us. I believe it's well worth mentioning that the very first Easter was not met by joy and celebration the way ours has been today. And in fact, that first Easter day was, was really just the opposite. It was met by all of Jesus' followers and all of his disciples by much sadness. And, and they were greatly distraught over everything that had occurred. You see, Luke chapter 24, he tells us about a group of women who were going to the tomb to find the body of Jesus. They expected to find the body of Jesus there because two days earlier on Friday, they had watched as he had been crucified. And they had been there when his lifeless body was taken down from the cross and when Joseph of Arimathea and, and others had, had come together to try to hastily prepare his body for burial. But because it was so late in the day and because the Jewish Sabbath started at sundown on Friday, they had not been able to fully prepare Jesus' body. And because the Sabbath day, which lasted 24 hours, prevented them from going back during the day of Saturday, that's why they get up early on Sunday morning, this group of women, to go back to the tomb to find Jesus' dead body so that they can finish the preparation that was necessary for his burial. And that tells us something. It tells us that this first Easter morning, this first Sunday of Easter, there was no excitement. There was no joy. It was all sadness. For these women and truly for all of Jesus' disciples, their only thought was simply that their Lord had died. And with him so had their hope. They had had such high expectations for him. But now their lives were empty. And all their hope was gone. So what hung over that first Easter Sunday was nothing short of gloom and anguish and defeat. Which I believe is an accurate description of the two disciples that we meet in the second part of Luke chapter 24. It's mid to late morning, even potentially after lunch on Sunday, that first Easter. And what we read is that two of Jesus' disciples had left Jerusalem and they were traveling back to their home in Emmaus. 
And I want us to read about their journey, picking up there in Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Notice what Luke writes. He says, Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And then one, the one whose name was Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And, and certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, and he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about all the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we thank you for this day, this beautiful day. This beautiful day that is marked by the wonderful news that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. We are so grateful for that truth and for what it means to us. And I pray this morning that you would help us to be able to understand it. For some, it may be for the very first time pray for them. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be given freedom to move in their lives. That you would draw them to you just as you've drawn us in this room to you. I pray for others of us who have heard this story and know about your resurrection and we've rehearsed it many times and thought about it. I pray that it would be fresh and new as we considered it yet again this morning. May your, may your truth continue to impact us. The truth 
of your resurrection. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name, for your sake. Amen. As I mentioned, um, what we just read occurred on that first Easter Sunday. And Luke tells us that these two disciples of Jesus, who very likely may have been a husband and wife, we don't know for sure, we can't be dogmatic about that, but there's the possibility that it was a husband and wife. Nevertheless, we do know there were two of them that were making their way from Jerusalem, and they, they made this trek, a seven-mile trek down through the hills of Judea to a little village named Emmaus. And Luke tells us that this couple, as they made their way down that road, were conversing with one another, and they were having a discussion with one another, and, and no doubt they were reliving all of the events of the past few days in their minds and, and talking about everything that happened. One, one writer has hypothesized that, that the conversation between the two consisted of this continual ifing back and forth. You know what, what those kind of conversations are like, right? If, if only this had occurred, or if, if only that had not occurred, then then this would have taken place. That kind of conversation was likely going on between them. They were probably saying things along the lines of, you know, if, if Jesus had just run from the garden when he had a chance, then he wouldn't have been crucified. Or if only we had stood with him during the trial, maybe things would have turned out different. If only Peter had not denied him. If only Jesus had not admitted to Pilate that he was a king. If only, if only, if only. You know, conversations like the one between these two disciples indicate the hopelessness and the dejection that they were feeling. You see, their Lord had been killed. He had been crucified as a criminal. And as such, their hopes that they had attached to him had died when he died. And now they were enveloped in the view of circumstances that was purely earthbound and, and, and horizontal. Luke tells us that while they were walking and while they were talking and while they were ifing back and forth with one another, that Jesus himself approaches the two of them and begins to walk alongside them. But strangely enough, they didn't recognize him. And that's, that truly is a strange part of this text. Was it because they just didn't know who he was? Was it, was it dark? Could they not see well? Why was it? Many have used this as a text to explain that Jesus' physical body after his resurrection was, was really different from his body before. But we know other places Jesus was recognized. We wonder, why was Jesus not recognized here? Well, verse 16 tells us specifically that their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. In other words, the way that the Greek construction of this sentence indicates to us is that they were prevented from recognizing Jesus by Jesus. Well, why? Why would Jesus restrain them from being able to recognize him? Well, I believe that Jesus actually did this in order to show these disciples who they were at this very moment without him so that he could actually show them how much they needed him. And I believe that you and I would do well to pay close attention to those things as well. And here's why. If we're honest with one another, and if we're honest with ourselves, we're a lot like these two disciples. 
oftentimes our view of our circumstances tends to become purely horizontal and earthbound. Since we live in a physical world, we kind of get bound by the physical things that take place in this world. Uh, we, we are prone to gauge things and respond to things based upon the physical things that we see or upon the historical uh, things that we know have happened in the past. When things in our physical world are going great, when our health is good, when our finances are good, when our relationships are all good, you know, we just kind of rock on along with life. Everything's great. Refrigerator's got plenty of food in it. Bank account's doing well. We're all good. Everything's wonderful. It's when, it's when we hit a snag. It's when, it's when the tough times of life hit. It's when, it's when a, a relationship takes a hit or when our finances take a hit or, or when the news takes a nosedive that suddenly we seem to find ourselves on a slow and sometimes not so slow descent. And as such, we often become blind to the spiritual realities that lie behind the events that we are going through at that moment. And such was the case of these two disciples. That's what actually leads me to the first point that I've listed for you in your bulletin that you should have received. There's an outline there. And the first point on that outline that I want you to note today is just simply this. Hopelessness and fear and despair actually blind us to what God is doing beyond our current circumstances. The truth is, you see, that these two disciples, they were so disappointed by everything that had happened. They were so distraught over all that had occurred that they were no longer able to see clearly. So as a means of exposing that blindness in their lives, Jesus kept himself from being recognized by them. Now, I want you to notice with me that when Jesus catches up to them and, and, and he's doing so incognito so that he is not recognized, he, he then begins to ask them some questions. And, and In fact, he wants to know, why are you so sad? He says, what kind of conversation is this that you have had, that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? In other words, what are you guys talking about that's making you so, so sad in your countenance? And Cleopas, he's the only one named of the two disciples, he looks at him and he's amazed by his question. He says, are, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And, and have you not known the things that have happened in these days? In other words, man, where have you been? Have you been under a rock somewhere? Now, here's the irony of that question. Cleopas asked Jesus, in effect, have you been under a rock? Well, no, he hadn't been under a rock. He had been behind a rock. In a tomb. And contrary to what Cleopas thought, rather than Jesus being someone who didn't know everything that had gone on in Jerusalem, he was really the only one who did know everything that had gone on there. He had been there through every trial that had been against him. He'd heard every word and accusation. He had been the one who had been beaten and felt all the stripes across his back. He had endured the mocking and the torture. He was there for all of that. He had been there when his hands were pounded through the, with the nails through and, and forced to, to hang on on a cross. He had been the one who had felt the, 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 this crown of thorns pushed down into his scalp and had felt every one of those piercings. Instead of being the only person in Jerusalem who didn't know what was going on, he was actually the only one who did. But these disciples didn't understand that yet. In fact, it was their lack of recognition of him that 
that truly led to their lack of understanding. To them, at this particular moment, God seemed far removed from their pain and from their disappointment. Yet the truth of the matter was, God could not have been any closer to them than he was at this very moment. They just didn't recognize it. Jesus knew that about these disciples. And in order to help them understand, I imagine he kind of had this twinkle in his eye. And so he looks at them. He says, tell me what things you're talking about. What things? And suddenly the two begin to pour out their thoughts. They begin to expose all of what they had been discussing along the way. And beginning in verse 19, they just start talking about the life of Jesus. They, they say that rightly that he was a man, a mighty prophet who worked mighty miracles and spoke timely truths that came from God. Then beginning in verses 20 and 21, they, they begin to recount the death of Christ by telling about the fact that, that the chief priests and the rulers of Israel had condemned him to death. But notice their view of Jesus' death. They did not see Jesus' death as something that was positive. As a matter of fact, they look at it as the very thing that shattered their hopes and dreams. Verse 21, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Obviously, Jesus' death had proven that he was not the Savior that they had been hoping for. These two disciples were at a place, and, and, and maybe many of you in this room have been at the same place in your own life, where all your expectations and all of your dreams have been shattered and all your hope has been disappointed. You see, they had hoped that Jesus would save them not by dying on a cross, but rather by delivering them from the hated Romans who ruled over them. That was the hope that they had, is that Jesus would come be the Savior for them in the way that they had determined they wanted to be saved. But instead of that happening, evil men had won, Jesus had been crucified, and as a result, all of their hopes had been defeated. And then the two disciples go on to tell the stranger among them about the extraordinary things that had happened on that very day. This is amazing to me. This was now, they say, the third day since Jesus was crucified, which, which is a crucial point that, in my mind, should have triggered them to remember all of the prophecies that Jesus had said about himself. Multiple times Jesus has said, I will be crucified when I get to Jerusalem, but don't worry, on the third day I will rise again. And this had been the third day, and yet that doesn't seem to jog these two disciples' memories. Rather, it seems only to have solidified their belief that the situation that they were facing was beyond hope. From their way of thinking, Jesus had been dead too long. They were obviously not thinking in terms of resurrection. They were only thinking in terms of defeat and death. In fact, the two go on to discuss how the body of Jesus had gone missing. They talk about the women who had gone to the tomb and encountered the angels and saw that there was nothing. Nobody was there. They talked about how Peter had gone and found that the tomb and investigated it. There was no body in the tomb. It was empty. But notice, notice what they said. But him they did not see. As one author has put it, these two disciples had been given basically all the facts that they needed about the cross 
and about the empty tomb, including the witness of the apostles. But in their confusion, it did not yet add up to a gospel. That leads me to the next point that I want you to see. The next point that I would make from you from this text this morning is this. Without the resurrection, there is no good news. And you're justified to continue in your hopelessness and your fear and your despair. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. There's no good news. Some have referred to the explanation that you read about here uh, that, that Cleopas and, and his friend are talking about as the gospel according to Cleopas. As they tell all of the events that had occurred up to this point, that's what many have referred to. But in reality, it's not a gospel at all. You see, the word gospel literally means good news. But there's no good news unless Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. There's no good news to announce. There's no good news to preach if Jesus Christ is still dead. That explains why these two disciples were so sad. They, they didn't believe that Jesus was alive. They'd been given all the information to show that he should be alive, but they didn't believe it. If they had believed it, listen, they wouldn't have left Jerusalem and headed back to Emmaus. They'd have stayed in Jerusalem where, he was, where Jesus was at. If nothing else, they would have turned around and gone back. Furthermore, they would have understood that the trials and the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus, well, that was really the fulfillment of all that he had promised. It wasn't the end of their hopes. It was the beginning of it. That is why the resurrection is absolutely essential to the proclamation of the good news. In fact, you could even set it up as an equation if you wanted to. The good news consists of this. It is the crucifixion and the death of Jesus verified by his bodily uh, death and burial plus the bodily resurrection of Jesus, which equals, as, which equals forgiveness of our sins and everlasting joy in the presence of God. Listen, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then everything that is wrong in this world will never be made right. The Apostle Paul even goes on to write that the bodily resurrection of Jesus is the central truth upon which all of Christianity either stands or falls. And he states in 1 Corinthians verse 15, chapter 15, verse 14, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and your faith is futile. Without the resurrection, there is no good news. And there is no hope, no reason for it. Jesus wanted these two disciples. And by extension, I think he wants for every single one of us to come to that understanding. But these two weren't quite there yet. They still couldn't see Jesus, even though they were staring right at him. So Jesus sets out to lift the gaze he sets out to, to lift these disciples that were, were so encapsulated in their blindness and in their unbelief. And they were weighed down by their circumstances and by their hopelessness and their fear and their despair. He, he seeks to lift them to a higher plane. And so in verses 25 and 26, notice, notice that he challenges them. He moves from the gospel of Cleopas, which is really no gospel at all, to the gospel of the Old Testament. And Luke writes that beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I would love to have known what all Jesus preached. I would have loved to have been on that road with him and heard the sermon that he preached. I can guarantee you it was a much better sermon than the one you've been listening to this morning. It would have been marvelous to think that he was going back to Genesis. 
and working his way through all of those, the Pentateuch, and then working his way through the historical books, then working his way through the poetry of the Old Testament, and then the prophets, and to expound and show how through every one of those things, it pointed to the fact that he was to be born and that he would be the savior of all mankind and that he would not only be born, but that he would be crucified. And not only would he be born and crucified, but that he would rise again and that all of that had to come about in order for salvation to take place. Jesus expounded all of the Old Testaments and the prophets to these two. And notice what their reaction was. They were so compelled. They were so drawn in by, by what Jesus said about himself that they would not let him go on. They said, look, you've got to come back to our house. You've got to come home. We, you, you, the day is far spent. Come and eat with us. And the Bible then tells us is as they sat around the table that Jesus took the bread and that he broke it and that he gave it, that suddenly their eyes were opened. They finally recognized that this stranger among them was really no stranger at all, but actually was Jesus Christ resurrected with them. Some have said, well, maybe they saw the, the, the nail prints in his hand when he broke the bread. Maybe they saw this. Maybe they saw that. I don't know exactly what did it, but the way the Greek is constructed, what we know for sure is that their sight came because God opened their eyes and allowed them to see Jesus for who he truly is. And suddenly everything came together. Suddenly they realized that the one that they'd been traveling with and talking with and the one who'd been preaching to them was Jesus. And furthermore, they realized that this was the important thing. They realized that he wasn't dead. He was no longer dead and in a grave somewhere. His body hadn't been stolen and taken away. No, Jesus was alive. He truly had risen from the dead. And that leads me to the third point that I want you to know. The third point is this. Through the scriptures... The Lord opens our eyes to recognize the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Chuck Swindoll has written this. He notes the irony of what Luke tells us. He said the disciples had been staring into the face of the risen Jesus, yet they were prevented from seeing him until they buried their faulty expectations. Then a careful review of the scriptures gave them a divine perspective on what they once saw as dismal circumstances. And once their eyes were opened to the reality and implications of the resurrection, Jesus became visible to their physical eyes. Now, what is interesting is that no sooner did Jesus appear and was he recognized by these two disciples than he completely vanished from in front of them. It's just one of those tidbits of information that you want to go, well, where did he go? We're not told. But here's what we are told. The two disciples are left there. They look at one another and they said, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? You see, suddenly these two disciples saw their road of despair turn into a highway of living hope. They had been on the descent from Jerusalem. They had been ifing one another to death. They had been dejected and encapsulated in hopelessness and fear and despair. And suddenly, having encountered the resurrection of Jesus, everything changed. And suddenly they were on a highway that was marked by a very different destination. 
they recognized that they had encountered the risen Christ. And Luke tells us that they jump up and they get back on that same road that they had just traveled down and now they run back up it. And I can only imagine what that trip back, I bet you they made it in a fraction of the time back to Jerusalem, those seven miles. As one of my friends used to say, I used to work with, there was no slow walking or sad singing on this road as they made their way back north. No, they had encountered Jesus, the risen Jesus. They were no longer bowed down in fear and cowering. In fact, a fire burned within them, that fire of hope and courage and joy. And here's what the message of all of this means, I believe, for us. It's that the resurrection of Jesus from the grave changes everything. And it doesn't just change everything for these two disciples. It has the power to change everything for you as well. And that leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning. I've listed it there for you. It's this. Faith that Jesus was crucified and has risen from the grave, listen, it can turn your hopelessness into hope. And it can turn your fear into courage. And it can turn your despair into joy. That's the message of Easter. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. And you may say, well, how does it do that? Well, first of all, it, it, it alerts us to the fact that we are all in a condition that takes us on the road to hopelessness and fear and despair. And that road is marked by death. The Bible tells us in Romans 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It goes on to tell us in Romans 6, verse 23, that the wages of our sin is death. Death is the road that all of us find ourselves on. But the second half of Romans 6, 23 tells us this, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What the second half of that verse says is that death is not the inevitable result for everybody, but that God in his love and in his mercy offers another alternative. He offers eternal life. And that destination is available to us as well. How do we get there? How do we get on the road to eternal life? Well, it tells us that there's nothing that we can do to get on that road, but that Christ has done everything. In fact, Romans 5 verse 8 tells us that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Romans 5 verse 8 actually explains what is perhaps the most famous verse in all of Scripture. The most famous verse in Scripture probably is John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5 verse 8 tells us why God gave Jesus. He gave him so that he might die in the place of sinners just like you, just like me, who are on the road marked by death and hopelessness and fear and despair. But because Jesus died and rose again, we can have eternal life and he changes our direction and can put us on the road to eternal life that is marked by, by hope and is marked by courage, is marked by life. Listen, friends, if Jesus did not rise, if he is still dead, then you and I remain on that long, dark road to death. Praise God, he is alive. Praise God, he did rise from the grave. And because that's true, you and I are offered this opportunity to journey on the road to eternal life. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. 
That is how you recognize and admit your sinfulness and you trust in Jesus to save you. You make him Lord of your life and you believe in Christ, that Christ, he died for you in your place and that God raised him from the dead. And immediately God takes you off the road that is bound for death and hell and destruction and puts you on the road for eternal life. By rising from the dead, Jesus has conquered death, hell and the grave. And his life gives us hope that we too will live. It gives us courage to face the struggles of this life without being overwhelmed by them. And it allows us to have joy amid all of the trials that we may face. It comes from recognizing the resurrected Savior. So let me ask you this morning. Have you recognized that Jesus is the crucified and resurrected Savior? Or have the circumstances of your life caused you to remain blinded to him. I want you to know Christ's resurrection is what puts the good in the good news. And it's what lifts us out of our hopelessness and out of our despair. And that is why the scriptures have been given to us to point us and to show us that our hope and our courage and our true joy can only be found in him. For those of us who are believers who have recognized the risen Christ. The point of application of this passage is very clear. It's simply, we must not let our eyes become dulled to how the Lord is working in our lives because we continue to focus on our troubles. Instead, we should pray that God would give us spiritual eyes to see the world from his viewpoint, recognizing that our struggles may be opportunities for us to share our faith with others who need to know about the risen Savior. As I mentioned at the beginning, my prayer this week has been that none of you will leave this place today simply having focused on the externals, but having missed the most important thing. That you would not leave here having missed an encounter with the risen Savior. In fact, it's been my conviction that an encounter with the resurrected Christ that results in genuine faith in him is the only thing, it is the only thing that will make a lasting difference in your life. Faith that Christ died for your sins and that he rose from the grave is what turns hopelessness to hope and fear into courage and despair into joy. That is the hope of the resurrection and it is the hope that is offered to you and me. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning.